According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me briefly in uh, Matthew 22, and then we will uh, be returning to Psalm 110. But we'll start with Matthew 22. We read Matthew, Mark, and Luke last week as we introduced this episode. We'll just use Matthew to fix our bearings uh, here this morning, and then we'll return to Psalm 110 where we left off. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask the Father to set aside distractions and give us concentration upon His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that it is for us to be here today. Father, we rejoice in all of your faithfulness day by day, week by week, month by month. And uh, once again today, here we are. And uh, the word of God is going to go forth. We're asking for distractions to be set aside. Asking, Father, for the humility that we might receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Matthew 22. Verse 41 says, uh, while the Pharisees were gathered together, remember we are in the midst of Wednesday of the Passion Week. Uh, our Savior will be on the cross in uh, less than 48 hours from the time of this episode. And there have been several uh, questions answered and, and several uh, rounds of, of uh, argument between him and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is a continuation on this. So while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, turning the tables on them. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And uh, he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? And they can't answer this. They won't let themselves answer this. How does David in the spirit, by the spirit, through the instrumentation of the Holy Spirit inspiring scripture, call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, and he does, it's undeniable, how is he his son? Which is also undeniable. That's why they're trapped, which is why they can't, they've, he, they've already said son of David back there in verse 42. The minute they said that, and they're correct in saying that, the minute they said that, then he's got him. Uh, he takes him to Psalm 110 and says, here it is. David calls his own son Lord. How does that work? And force them to answer the question. And if they fail to do so, well then, walk away. All right? They've got to deal with it uh, 24-7. They've got to deal with it in the dark of night. They've got to deal with it at 3 in the morning. They've got to deal with the very question that he posed them. They can't answer. If they let themselves answer, they have to acknowledge the truth of who he is and, and what he's been saying for three and a half years of earthly ministry. All right. Jesus ends the string of challenging questions with a question of his own that the Pharisees will not answer. I think I said cannot answer, but it's actually will not answer. And this, by the way, is our harmony that we're using. Who needs a harmony? Okay. This will kind of give you, and I know Irma needs one. Anybody else need a harmony? I'll try to hand these out every week. You got one? Okay. Good. You got one? All right. Got one? Okay. This will just kind of chart it out. We, you say, well, we're on Wednesday. The cross is on Friday. That means we're almost done with our Life of Christ series, right? What are you going to teach after Life of Christ? Uh, slow down. <laughs> yes, we're approaching the cross. Uh, but when you look at that harmony of the Gospels, you'll notice uh, we've still got several events between now and Friday. And, uh, and then there's events after Friday. And there's events on Saturday, on Sunday. Uh, resurrection. And then 40 days of ministry after resurrection. All the way to his ascension. Acts chapter 1. So um, 2011 will not be the year that we finish uh, the Life of Christ series. I'll tell you that right now. Um, I, just, I don't know if we're going to get it finished before the trumpet or not. We'll just see. <clears throat> what the Lord supplies. In any event, there have been a string of challenging questions, and you'll notice them in the episodes prior to episode 9. All right? Uh, the withering fig tree and the questions that were associated with that. The uh, Sadducees questioning the, the resurrection, coming up with this 
uh, cockamamie story about some woman widowed seven times, right? To all these brothers and all the, I mean, making up all these, these goofy things. The Pharisees with challenging questions. And now he's turning the tables. He's turning the tables. He's about to get to his final public sermon. The final public sermon, and then he's going to go in private with his disciples. So these are things that uh, are, are kind of interesting to see where they fit in the, in the overall uh, events of this Passion Week. So uh, a question of his own that the Pharisees will not answer. And in my mind, this is a pattern that we can imitate. We're supposed to be like Christ. We can emulate his example. And uh, if, in fact, there are folks that uh, you can silence this way, then, well, that's a pattern he did. So why not? Use the Scriptures. Because their argument's not with you anyway, is it? Their argument's with the Scriptures. So leave them with the Scriptures and then walk away. And, uh, and let the Word do its work. It's uh, far more powerful than I am anyway. So let the, let the Word of God do the work. Uh, There is a slight distinction between Matthew's account and the accounts of Mark and Luke. They're not contradictory. We've we've done this many times in reconciling and harmonizing uh, divergent records. Um, In Matthew's account, which we just read, uh, Jesus asks a two-part question uh, with the Pharisees' first answer, leaving them unable to provide the second answer. So the first part is, who is the Christ? Whose son is he? And they answered, son of David. All right. And then he gives them the second part of the question. Well, then, uh, how does David call him Lord? All right. Matthew records it as a two part question in the when you read the accounts of Mark and Luke, Mark 12 and Luke 20, uh, they are recorded as simply a one part question. Jesus says, how is the son of David also his Lord? And so it's not a contradiction in terms of how the authors chose to uh, to narrate the um the conversation between them, and um, we don't have really any issues there. But you, sh- you should be aware of it because critics will mock and scorn and say, "Well, see, the Bible contradicts itself. The Bible's not true, and so forth." This is an exercise we've done again and again and again throughout the uh, the Life of Christ series. Thirdly, I do like looking at how the Lord deals with his critics. Jesus exegeted Exodus three six. Now, what's exegete mean? What what is exegete or exegesis? To extract something, yeah, ex, exo, like the exit, okay? And uh, you're actually drawing out of the text the information and the details. Anytime we go back, for example, we go back to the original Greek rather than an English translation. Anytime we're pulling details out of the text from the text, we're exegeting. And maybe we... We, maybe we're modifying our English translation based on a, a verb tense or based upon a, an aspect of grammar that sometimes it's hard to translate. There are things that when you're working between languages don't always come across literally. They don't always come across um, exactly. And so you've got to spend the time to fully spell it out. And that's what he did with the Sadducees, if you might remember. In Exodus uh, 3.6, he used Exodus 3.6 to shut them up. Right. They, they don't believe in the resurrection. And he says, well, how come Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are still alive? If there's no resurrection, if there's nothing, if there's no life after death, why are Abraham, Isaac and Jacob still alive? And how did he prove they were still alive? Because he went to the present tense of I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Not I used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so he uses the present tense in Exodus 3.6, as he's exegeting that passage to make the principle that, that they're still alive. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He's the living God. Okay? That itself is an exegetical point. He is the living God. You ever think of that? He's, the, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He himself is living, and he's the God of the living. That, that itself becomes an exegetical point. So we, we saw that in episode 7. You'll, you'll see this in your Harmony of the Gospels, the uh, Jesus' final week at Jerusalem, episode 7, when he exegeted Exodus 3.6 in order to silence the Sadducees. Now, in this episode, Jesus' final week at Jerusalem, episode 9, he's going to exegete Psalm 110, verse 1. And in his exegesis of Psalm 110, verse 1, he's going to silence the Pharisees. He's going to leave them with a conundrum that they, they don't want to go there. <laughs> okay. And uh, in doing so, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, and he's going to take him to this. How 
since David is the author of Psalm 110, how does he talk about Yahweh speaking to his Lord? And they've come to the conclusion, rightly, that this that Psalm 110 is messianic and that, that uh, he is talking about the Messiah. And the Messiah is the son of David. How does he call his own son Lord, being the Messiah? And so uh, they have to acknowledge that, yes, the son of David will be the Lord. He is the Lord. He is God the Son. He is, he is God himself that's walking this earth. And uh, the deity, the expected, anticipated deity of the Christ was known to the rabbis. It was known to the Pharisees. Um, they just didn't want to admit it when Jesus himself was making those claims. All right. Uh, they did not want to admit uh, that Jesus is God, see, because they want to they put him to death for blasphemy, right? And to cl- declare himself God is blasphemy unless he's God. Then it's truth. Then he's the Messiah. So he uses their own theology in the exegesis of this passage to demonstrate that. So let's go back now to Psalm 110 and take a look at it. Psalm 110. It's a short psalm. It's only seven verses. And the two that we focus the two verses we focus on the most are verse one and verse four. Because these are the ones that are quoted in the New Testament so often. I mentioned last week, and it's coming up on the slides here, that uh, Psalm 110 is the Old Testament passage quoted more than any other in our New Testament, at least as far as the Psalms are concerned. So the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country he will drink from the brook by the wayside therefore he will lift up his head all right so it's the psalm of david and uh, it is not speaking about david himself it is looking into uh, eschatologically looking into the future looking into the coming kingdom and uh, it uh, pertains to the christ so here's the notes we started with a week ago and then we can gain some new ground It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. We looked at that. I won't bring that back up again today. Um, All the quotes, though, come from verse 1 and verse 4. The Messianic context of Psalm 110 is accepted by both Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, There might be some folks today that would try to cast doubt on that, but Jesus accepted it as being Messianic. And uh, the, the Pharisees of his day accepted it as being Messianic. Even uh, today, they will accept it as being, uh, uh, at least Orthodox and conservative Jews accept it as being Messianic. And I want to say, having read Arnold Fruchtenbaum, I think even the liberals, even the, uh, even the, 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 the whacked out, what do they call themselves, the Reformed, which are really liberal, uh, Judaism, even they accept Psalm 110 as being Messianic. So uh, it's, it's kind of interesting that you have all three branches of the primary branches of Judaism except the Messianic nature of Psalm 110. Remarkable enough because the word Messiah doesn't appear anywhere in the psalm, right? There's no Mashiach anywhere in the Hebrew text. There's no Christos anywhere in the Greek Septuagint. But it is Messianic and no one ever disputed that. All right, so who is the my Lord there in verse 1? He's talking about the Christ. He's talking about the the coming ruler that uh, Yahweh will stretch forth your Strong scepter from Zion. First of all, it is a psalm of David. That's the prescript. Don't overlook those. Uh, this is divine testimony. It's not uh, the, the term uh, David Mizmor is a part of the Hebrew text. It's not a, a publishing blurb. You don't confuse the publishing blurbs in your English text with what actually occurs in the Hebrew manuscript. Now in mine, I've got Psalm 110 that's not in the original Hebrew, okay? Um, the Lord gives dominion to the king, okay? 
Again, that's a publishing blurb. That's, that's included by the Lockman Foundation in my New American Standard text. And, and you might have something different in your text. Those are called uh, publish, uh, pericopes, uh, little uh, guys that help you think your way through the, uh, the content here. But when it does say a Psalm of David, that is in the text. That is original to the Hebrew manuscripts. And uh, sometimes it's included in verse 1 in the Hebrew manuscripts. Sometimes it's the entirety of verse 1 in the Hebrew manuscripts. And then uh, we end up with one verse different when, uh, when they're versified that way. All right. Davidic authorship accepted by Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus says, how does David in the spirit call him Lord? David in the spirit, right? Meaning under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the composition of Scripture. It was by means of, under the empowerment of, that the prophets of old did not speak of their own authority, but as carried along by the Holy Spirit, they spoke the oracles of God. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David cites these words and puts, puts them in the scriptures. Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand. This becomes powerful and we've got to spend our time today looking at it. There are two words for Lord. They're both in this passage. And so it might be best to simply think of it this way. Yahweh made utterance to Adonai. Yahweh made utterance to Adonai. And if that helps you to sort it out, then uh, you'll have the impact of what this verse is, is actually saying. So this is a mizmor. Mizmor is a uh, type of psalm. It's a musical piece that has both instruments and vocals. Le David Mizmor. And uh, he says here, Yahweh made utterance or makes utterance to Adonai. And we have no problems with that dispensationally. As New Testament believers, we can say God the Father says to God the Son. <laughs> and we're easy enough about that. But even without a New Testament perspective, even with strictly limiting ourselves to an Old Testament perspective, we would, we would still recognize Yahweh and Adonai here. We would still recognize the Spirit of God. Um, I believe the Old Testament saints had an appreciation for Trinity, even if they didn't have it spelled out in a creed or in a single passage of Scripture like we have. Um, there's no Old Testament passage uh, that's comparable to First Thessalonians or to... Uh, Matthew 28, or the places where we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the same verse. Nevertheless, Old Testament believers were Trinitarian and should have been Trinitarian. They would have had no doubt about the deity of, of Christ. They would have had no doubt about the deity of the Messiah. And uh, would have had no doubt about uh, Yahweh being a Father-Son tandem uh, had they actually done the work to, to go through all the passages related to Yahweh. So, you have Yahweh here. And um, as we've taught it in the past, uh, this is the YHWH is called the Tetragrammaton. Tetra meaning four, four letters. The four letters Yahweh, YHWH, the most holy name for God, the name that no Jewish person would, would utter. They would, in fact, they'd be cringing today hearing me say Yahweh all the times I say Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. All right, that would make them uncomfortable. And if there was a Jewish person here cringing, I would probably pick up on that and, and maybe demonstrate a little more sensitivity to that. But uh, when they would read it in the text, they would be reading along in the text, and they would read, you know, a Psalm of David, and then they would read, ah, and they, their eye would fall upon the Tetragrammaton. It would fall upon the YHWH. And so they wouldn't read it out loud. They would substitute instead, they would substitute Adonai, okay, which is actually the second name in this. So they would read it aloud. They would say, Adonai says to Adonai. God says to God. And uh, that becomes important, too. So Yahweh made utterance to Adonai. And the two words for Lord, we looked at those. Strong's number 3068 is the Tetragrammaton with 6,519 uses. Did anybody track those down last week? You, were, you looked at all 6,519. Excellent. All right. Doug gets brownie points at the judgment seat of Christ. All right. And um, I know you're not lying, right? I believe you. Yeah, yeah. Love believes all things. <laughs> that's okay he who sits in the heavens laughs so we're allowed to have a relaxed mental attitude and we're allowed to appreciate divine humor nothing uh, unbiblical about enjoyment over 
having some fun. All right, so that's Yahweh. Uh, the, when you give Yahweh different vowels, uh, Yahweh has no vowels, and originally none of the Hebrew manuscripts had vowels. Uh, but when you try to give different vowel pointings for Yahweh, uh, you, the, the most common are the A and the E, where which by uh, we get the Yahweh pronunciation. But occasionally they would give the vowels for Adonai, and in giving the vowels for Adonai, um, the E O A vowels, then they would end up with Jehovah instead of Yahweh. That's why Yahweh and Jehovah are the same. Uh, are the same name. It's just depending on which vowels you choose to put in there and whether your, your W or V is, is a W or a V because um, it could be either way. So Yahweh and Jehovah is the same name. All right? it's, it's, it's with reference to the holy name of God, the name that uh, by which he redeemed Israel, the name by which he revealed himself to Moses, the significance of which being I am. And he tells Moses, tell Israel that I am has sent you to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And the meaning of Yahweh, the significance of Yahweh, is the I am. He is the self-existent. No one caused him. He's not dependent upon anyone for his eternal existence. He is the I am. And that's the meaning behind Yahweh. And then your second term is Adonai. Adonai. Strong's number 136, if you use Strong's numbers for your word studies. It comes from the masculine singular Adon, A-D-O-W-N. Adon, and uh, it starts with the apostrophe. It starts with the Aleph, which is, um, so it doesn't really start with an A, but it starts with the Adon. And if you think about the closing of the throat when, when you say the word honest, right? You know the word honest? In English, we spell it with an H, but we don't pronounce it honest. We pronounce it honest. We started with our throat closed when we said the word honest. My little Hebrew pronunciation lesson for you today. All right. So close your throat like that every time you have a word that starts with the Aleph. All right. And if you if you consistently close your throat for every Aleph word in your Hebrew vocabulary, you will lock it in your mind that it's an Aleph, not a uh, ayin, as you're uh, spelling those words. So Adon is the masculine singular. Adonai is the plural of Adon. And it's uh, singular, first person singular, my Lord. Okay, uh, But it's plural, my Lord's. Almost like Elohim is plural. right? And so every time we have Elohim, we, we have to ask ourselves, is this God or are these the gods, the false gods of the nations around Israel? Okay, Same thing we, we ask ourselves with Adonai. Is it Adonai singular or is it Lord's plural? The lords of the Philistines, the lords of the Babylonians, the lords of whoever. It could be lords plural if it's used of Gentile lords, if it's used of human beings. Then you would have lords plural. And the biggest clue you have is you look at the verb that's, that's attached to each of these uses of Adonai. Because if it's with reference to capital A Adonai, one of God's titles. If it's with re reference to capital A Adonai, singular, then the verb that goes with it will be singular. It's the same exercise we would do with Elohim. Okay, We say Elohim said, not Elohim say. The gods say or, God, or Elohim said. Okay, And um, anyway, it's just, if you know anything about language, if you know anything about how your verbs have to match, if you have more than one subject, then you need a plural verb to go with that. Okay. Um, it'd be like uh, Bob eats at Pluckers, or Bob and I eat at Pluckers. That's plural. We change eats to eat, right? And and it's really as simple as that. You you're looking at the verb, and you're saying and you're determining whether that's a plural verb or a singular verb, right? And then when you notice that it's a singular verb and you don't have any problem with Adonai being plural because you, you understand that that's the name Adonai, not the plural noun for lords, but the actual name Adonai. And so that's what we have here. Jehovah made utterance to Adonai, sit. In a singular verb telling one individual Adonai to sit at my right hand until I make your, singular, your enemies, a footstool for your singular feet. So clearly, 
the uh, singular verb sit and the singular possessive your enemies and the singular possessive your feet tells us that Adonai here, even though it's a plural noun, is, should be taken as a singular name, should be taken as a capital A Adonai name for, uh, for the Christ, name for um, God the Son, as we understand Trinity. All right. So the Lord said to my Lord. We have something similar too, by the way, in where, um, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Okay, we have a redundancy there as well. Therefore, Elohim, your Elohim. Therefore, God, your God. Okay, and right there, you've got to deal with that. You've got to say, well, how does this work? How does God have a God? <laughs> well, God has a God, we understand in the New Testament, when God becomes flesh and walks this earth, and his God then in heaven is God the Father. Okay. So that's why I'm talking about even the Old Testament, if they think it through and they exegete the way the Lord's exegeting, they're going to have no problem dealing with Trinity. They're going to have no problem dealing with Yahweh and Yahweh in terms of a father-son unity. I and the Father are one. They're going to have no problem with the Spirit of God brooding over the surface of the deep and God's Spirit himself being a member of Trinity. There's going to be no issues there. If you ever want to have fun, just read Arnold Fruchtenbaum and how he proves the Trinity from a Jewish perspective in the Old Testament uh, writings, and I think he does a very good job with that. All right. So these are the terms here. Yahweh made utterance to Adonai. Yahweh makes utterance to Adonai. Sit in my right hand. Now, the made utterance. I tried to highlight this for you as well. Uh, this is not just a, a generic word like Amer or a generic word that means said. Uh, if it was just a plain, ordinary, hey, he said to somebody. Uh, no, it's actually a significant. The word is na'um. The word is na'um. And this is a um, uh, a particular utterance. This isn't just hanging out with your buddy talking about something. This is actually an authoritative utterance. This is a declaration. And I think that's uh, we, we want to make that distinction. A formal declaration. Whether you're talking about the verb or you're talking about the, na- the cognate noun that's attached to this as well. Um, it references a divine revelation, something that was not previously known. Something that could only come from the source of God. All right. I mean, you understand the difference. Okay. There's a difference between, um, between me reading Psalm 110.1, where I can say the words, versus Yahweh actually uttering them for the first time from the throne of grace, when he actually uttered, sit at my right hand. Okay, That was a proclamation from glory. That was a divine utterance. Sit at my right hand. And one that had been thousands of years in coming. Okay, One that had actually been anticipated. One that had been expected. One that had been prophesied. One that had been lusted after by Satan beforehand. So this is not just a generic word for saying. This is a fun word study with na'um. And number 5002 is the strongest concordance number on it. Join me over in Hebrews 1, and I'll show you why this has such an impact. To the New Testament, book of Hebrews. And if you know anything about the fall of Satan, if you know anything about his five I wills, if you know anything about his discontent uh, in Ezekiel 28... And what it was that sparked the pride that led to the angelic fall, you realize there's a lot more work here with this utterance than we typically give it credit for. In uh, Hebrews chapter 1, you've got an entire chapter demonstrating the superiority of Christ over the angels. Really, um, the prologue in verses 1 through 3 highlights his unique glory, that he is the keynote speaker of God's plan of the ages. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways. There were lots of prophets from the beginning all the way through the Old Testament time. And uh, in many portions, 39 Old Testament books, and in many ways, visions, dreams, donkeys, you know, burning bushes, many portions, many ways, God revealed himself. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. 
We have the pinnacle. We have the ultimate. We have the greatest revelation God could ever give concerning himself. And that's in his son. And he, the son, is the radiance of his, the father's glory. And the exact representation of the father's nature. So if you've seen Christ, you've seen the father. He's the exact representation. Even though no one has seen God at any time. He who has seen the son, though, has seen the father. He upholds all things by the word of his power. I love that. I can tell the environmental wackos to chill, relax. You don't have to save the planet. Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Most uh, environmentalists don't want to hear that because they don't believe in God anyway. They hate Jesus. But Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down. Now understand, this is a key element of the whole plan of God for the ages, from Alpha to Omega. When Jesus Christ sat down, that was a testimony of something awesome. Something that spans 6,000 years of human history. And then moving forward for another 1,000 years of millennium and however long we got in between. This is a, a pivotal, it's, 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 I would put it equal to the cross. Because it's made possible by the cross. All right? When you talk about how he was crucified at the uh, consummation of the ages, once and for all a sacrifice for all eternity, what happened then 40 days after the resurrection? He sat down. Why is that significant? Well, the rest of Hebrews is going to tell us. But think about it. He sat down. It doesn't say... When he made purification of sins, he provided us eternal life. Okay, That's true, but that's not what is highlighted here. Uh, when he made purification of sins, he made it possible for us to be saved. Yes, that's true, but that's not what it says here. Something very significant is happening here. When he made purification of sins, he sat down. That's awesome. And what we're studying today in Psalm 110 is the utterance that Yahweh made when he said, sit down, sit at my right hand. This is, this is a, a focal point. And I think the cross, sometimes we think of the cross as the, the focal point around which all of creation revolves as a circle. But maybe it's best if we think of the cross and the session, the, the taking his seat as the two locus points around which the plan of God revolves as an ellipse, on an elliptical basis. Okay, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become, having become, as much better than angels, having become, shows the growth, shows the maturity, shows the reward, shows what he earned, what he deserved, what he achieved in his first advent incarnation. He was not entitled to this sit-down utterance until, until he ascends in victory. Having become as much better than angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. This is why the incarnation is vital. Because God can't become. God is. I am. The Father I am, the Son I am, the Holy Spirit I am. They don't become, they always are. But with the humanity of Christ, the Word became flesh. And now there's a member of Trinity because He's united to true humanity. There is a member of Trinity who is able to become things. He's able to become a faithful and merciful high priest. He's able to become an intercessor. He's able to become the firstborn of many brethren. He's able to become the beloved son who can sit at the father's right hand. And in order for Yahweh to make the utterance, sit at my right hand, God the son has to become, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ has to become the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Please wrap your minds around this. This is, this is bigger than most people ever think about when it comes to take your seat at my right hand. Now, it, what immediately follows, and I have verse 13 on, on the slide. You really want to also add verse 5 as well as verse 13 there. Because as soon as he says, sit in my right hand, having become as much better than angels, notice, to which of the angels 
did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Now that's Psalm 2. And the, uh, the uh, doctrine there is just as vital as Psalm 110. Okay, you've got to understand Psalm 2, you've got to understand Psalm 10 if you're going to have proper millennial studies and uh, fullness of time studies. But you are my son, today I've begotten you. Now a whole realm of angels were called sons of God, the Bnei Elohim. The sons of God were the mighty uh, cherubim, the sons of God were part of Satan. Many of them were part of Satan's rebellion when they cohabitated with women and produced the Nephilim in Genesis 6. The Bnei Elohim were some of the, the rebels that followed after Satan. I believe Satan himself was a Bnei Elohim, son of God, rank cherubim. But to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my one and only, unique, only begotten Monogenes son? They were all created Jesus' humanity was begotten. Okay, They could be B'nai Halloween sons of God, little s, sons, but only Jesus Christ was the capital S, son of God, begotten by the Father. That's huge. So, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you, in the whole Proverbs 8 reality of the begetting of Christ's humanity. And I will be a father to him, he shall be a son to me. To when he again brings the firstborn into the world. See? Firstborn. He says, let all the angels of God worship him. So even the mightiest of angels, even Satan himself, didn't qualify as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He has to worship Jesus Christ. And the fact that he won't is what sparks the, the rebellion there. So to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, did I have begotten you? That's powerful. And that brings in Psalm 2 into the, into the understanding here. But look down to verse 13, and he repeats the question, to which of the angels did he ever say? And now he quotes Psalm 110. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? No angel had the divine utterance that this throne belongs to you. Only Jesus Christ, after the cross, received that utterance that the Father said, this is your throne. It's like no one's worthy to take the scroll and open the seals, except the lamb standing having been slain. That's right. No one is, is entitled to this seat. Now, Satan lusted after this seat. And if you know anything about the five I wills, you understand that he was discontent with his seating assignments. He said, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. What's he saying? I want to be the one to whom all the angels are going to worship. But he's not worthy of worship. He himself is an angel. He himself has to worship God. But he's not content with that. He said, I will take my seat on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. He's lusting after a seat, and it's not for him. It's not for him. The utterance, the divine utterance, the na'um, was reserved for Jesus Christ, the one for whom all of creation was designed for. So we want to understand that. To which of the angels? It's rhetorical. Answer it yourself. None of them, and especially not Satan. <laughs> okay? None of them. No angel, and especially not Satan, is entitled to this seat. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? When you think of the power and the glory and the majesty and, and the might of of all these angels and everything they can do and all of that, and they were simply designed to be our servants. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. The greater shall serve the lesser. The powerful are going to be the servants of the humble. And it's almost unthinkable to the fallen angels. They shudder to think of it. The demons believe and tremble. They know it's true. And they're hating the fact. It'd be like knowing that, uh, you know, if... Imagine the realities of saying that, well, yeah, you know, our eternal destiny, our eternal destiny, we're going to spend all eternity, ages and ages, forever and ever, serving resurrected cockroaches. And every cockroach you've ever stomped on, no, I'm making this up, of course, right? Okay, but think about... The parallel. Think about how the angels 
view mortality in the realms of human beings. Cockroaches. Frail little puny creatures could be stomped on. They can die like that. They're just mortal. They just, you know, they're just bags of water with air. And, and it doesn't take much to cause a, a mortal human being to become deceased. It, does, it really is not hard to kill a human being. Okay? Um, physically, and the mechanics of physical death aren't complicated. And so to these mighty angels that can span the galaxies and, and are immortal, think about how we look in their eyes. And they're told that they're going to be servant, our servants for all eternity. Because God the Son is identified with humanity, not an, angelity. Okay? He's the God-man. He's not the God-angel. And it's humanity with which he's well pleased. And this uh, is the, one of the main pride factors that motivates the angelic rebellion. All right. So made utterance, declared as a divine revelation, sit at my right hand. Sit at my right hand. The right hand signifies an honoring to equal status. An honoring to equal status. Not just sit, not just sit till I make your enemies a footstool, but sit at my right hand. Signifies an honoring to equal status. We see Solomon placing Bathsheba at his right hand in 1 Kings 2.19. We have another exaltation when Nebuchadnezzar lifts up um, Jehoiakim in 2 Kings 25. So the position of kings is in, in the ancient world is huge. Uh, particularly if you are a king of kings and a lord of lords. Particularly like in the case of of Nebuchadnezzar, yes, he's a king, but he has other kings that are bowing before him. They would not be seated at his right hand. They would be seated on his left, or they would be seated in front of him as a subject king. But to be seated on his right hand would be to say, this is my equal. This is my right-hand man. This is my, we use the right-hand man, right? This is my, I'm, I'm co-equal with him. I'm dependent upon him. He and I are, are fellow partners in this endeavor, and the session of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God will become a vital concept for the dispensation of the church. The fact that there is a that God the Son is seated at the Father's right hand, the session of Jesus Christ as the head of the church, is what allows for the church to be a heavenly people, what allows the church to be a heavenly ministry, because the head of the church is at the Father's right hand. And what we bind on earth has been bound in heaven. What we loose on earth has been loosed in heaven. What we forgive on earth has been forgiven in heaven. We are the reflections, the expressions of what our head of the church has already decreed at the Father's right hand. Israel didn't have this. Israel had a God in heaven, but they did not have an intercessor seated at Yahweh's right hand. Their uh, mediator was the high priest who could go into the Holy of Holies one day a year. Our mediator is the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies once and for all. And is now seated at the Father's right hand. The church age has God the Son in session at the right hand of God the Father. Gentiles never had that. Israel never had that. Angels never had that. Millennial saints won't have that. Millennial saints will have God the Son on David's throne in Jerusalem. The session of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God will become a vital concept for the dispensation of the church. Ephesians 1.20, Colossians 3.1, Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 8.1, Hebrews 10.12, Hebrews 12.2. You think this is an emphasis in Hebrews? Because <laughs> what's Hebrews? Hebrews is the book of the glorified Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, our priesthood in Christ. Not the Levitical priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood, the realities of what we have. Not looking forward in shadows, but looking back to what Christ fulfilled and seeing how we operate in the reality. Okay? I don't have to wear an ephod. I don't have to wear a turban. I don't have to wear, uh, I don't have to have a Urim and Thummim in my, in my uh, breast piece here. I've got, got a pin in my pocket. I don't have to have um, all the ritual, all the liturgy, all of, the, all of those were shadows pointing forward to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ and we are in Christ. We are the substance in Christ. And so um, the blessings of this, no wonder Hebrews unfolds this. All right. Ephesians 1.20. I better 
hit this hard and fast. I don't think, I don't want to take a third session on this. I think we can wrap it up today, but we'll see. There is a point five, and point five has an A and a B, but I think I've already taught it without giving the points yet, so. When you finally see the point five and A and B, you're going to say, well, that's obvious. You gave it away two days ago. All right, Ephesians uh, one twenty, And you can spend a whole month just in chapter 1 here. Uh, but notice, we need to understand that we are the heavenly people, that we have um, revelation given to us. His prayer is, making mention of you in my prayers. What's Paul praying for in verse 16? Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. What's Paul praying for for these church-age believers in Ephesus? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Church-age believers need to be patrological in our thinking. And if we're not, then we pray that the Father would make it happen. That the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, so that we will know what is the hope of His calling. That's the Father's calling. Are we, are we Father thinking? Are we just happy to go to heaven when we die? Or is there something else we're supposed to do with the hope of our calling, the Father's calling? What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? This is the Father's inheritance in the saints. Do we have an appreciation for that? Do we recognize what it is? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe? The Father's power towards us who believe. Are you using the Father's power today? Are you still muddling along in the language of I can't? That's that's bad language. Don't use that kind of language. That's bad language. God's language is I can. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. That's the Father's might. See, everybody, too many people don't think, and they work through this text, they think it's Jesus in all these verses. It's not Jesus in all these verses. It's the Father in all these verses, and we don't even see Jesus until verse 20. The working of his might. Well, whose might? Which he, who, brought about in Christ. Ah, okay, well, it can't be Christ then. and It has to be the Father all up through this. When he raised him from the dead. Okay. When he, the Father, raised him, Christ, from the dead. So all of a sudden we have to go back now all the way to the beginning of this prayer, bowing our knees before the Father and the he and the hymns and all of the pronouns. It's all the Father. We, we've got to be patrological in our dispensation and we fall short. Which he, the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and did what? Seated him. At his right hand in the heavenly places. The session of Jesus Christ is a work of the Father. It is a demonstration of the Father's power. And that's the power he's supplying to you and to me on a daily basis. Do you think session is important? We have an advocate before the Father. We have an intercessor before the Father. The, the satisfaction before the Father. You know, think about the power you have to even go to him in prayer. It's because he's seated at his right hand. We don't need the mediator. We don't need to go sit in a booth with a frustrated Roman monk. <laughs> Some poor celibate guy that... I don't even get me on that. Um, I go to the Father because Jesus Christ is seated in session. Raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are angelic references. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. This is our destiny. We're, we're being trained in this age. We're going to rule in that age to come with Christ. Because when he's no longer seated, when the enemies are made a footstool, when the Father says, all right, now rise and conquer, where are we going to be? Rising and conquering. That's right. In Christ, where he is, there we shall be also. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Put him in all, in, uh, put him, all things in subjection under his feet. All things. Totality of all existence subject to Christ. And. Now let me ask you something. If, if I'm describing the totality of all existence... How do I add and to that? 
How do you add something beyond everything? You create something new. A brand new realm of creation. Something non-existent prior to the totality of all existence being subjected to Christ. So he put all things in subjection under his feet. And brings about a whole new realm of creation when he institutes the church. Gave him as head over all things to the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Hoping that after today we'll have a greater appreciation for the unique creation that is the church. All right, Colossians 3 1. Therefore, if and you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. And what's he doing? Seated at the right hand of God. It's not just that he's in heaven. I mean, that's awesome. We serve a risen Savior, yes, but seated. And what's the significance of being seated? The utterance has been made. The, uh, the Father is presently making the enemies a footstool. The Father is preparing the eschatological kingdom. See, we've got we to gotta start living with these things. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Okay? The bills you can't pay are on earth. So quit fretting over them and dwelling on them and crying over them and your health test, your aching back is on earth. Your obnoxious boss is on earth. All right? Don't set your mind on those things. Set your mind on the things above. And then when you deal with them, you're dealing with them from a heavenly perspective. Your uh, mindset has been adjusted appropriately. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Where are you seated? Yeah, we've got to recognize he's seated at the right hand of the Father, we're seated at the right hand of Christ. Positionally, that's our truth. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also be revealed with him in glory. You're in Christ. You're hidden with Christ and God. You're seated at Christ's right hand. The life that you now live, you live, is not you. It's the Son of Man. It's the Son of God in you. That's right. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we have all these things. All right, let's Hebrews 1, 3, Hebrews 8, 1. I already said this, that uh, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Hebrews 1, 3. I love the fact that you go through seven chapters of Hebrews, and just in case you weren't tracking with what he was dealing with, he tells you in chapter 8 and verse 1, now the main point in what has been said is this, <laughs> Okay. If, if you kind of got lost in those first seven chapters, this catches you up. The main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Are you catching this now? <laughs> Did you miss it in seven chapters? Get it now. Our high priest, our savior, our Lord, our king has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. You've got to understand, we are a heavenly priesthood. We are a heavenly people. Over to chapter 10 and verse 12. See, in verse 11, every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can ever take away sin. Morning again, another sacrifice. Evening, another sacrifice. Every evening, every morning, another sacrifice, another sacrifice. Day of Atonement, great. Day of Atonement, the holiest day of all Judaism. The sacrifice is made and the nation is cleansed until the next Day of Atonement. We'll do it again. The next Day of Atonement, we'll do it again. And year after year after year, there's these reminders of sin, of the separation from God, and the necessity of the, the lamb slain and and all of that, until he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, took us to heaven, gave us eternal life, forgave our sins, brought captivity captive. I mean, he did all that, but what's the impact? Sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And this present time, the present working of the Father and preparing the enemies and preparing us 
This is the church age in which we live, and it's powerful. Finally, Hebrews 12, 2, fixing your eyes on Jesus. And, and understand, we're fixing our eyes not on the crucified Lord. Not the risen Lord. The seated Lord. Thank you. That's right. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I don't want to ignore the cross, but I'm not focused on the crucified Lord. Endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We fix our eyes on the seated Lord in session. Understanding he was seated because he was crucified. Seated at the right hand of God. All right. So, answer the question. The Pharisees won't do it. You can do it. How can David's son also be his Lord? Well, obviously, he's God. His pre-incarnation glory is the Son of God. He existed before David. He existed before Abraham. We read in John 8, 58. Before Abraham was born, I am. The pre-incarnation glory. i got three minutes. John 8, 58. How can David's son also be his Lord? Well, he's his God. He's his creator. I like the genealogies that are found in Luke that go, Jesus, the son of Joseph, son of Nathan, the son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of uh, David, son of Abraham, son of Noah, son of Adam, son of God. <laughs> right? Adam was created in God's image. And it is interesting. He is the son, but when you follow the chain all the way back prior to Adam, who do you have? You have God, God the son. So we read in John 8, here's another Pharisee conflict. And um, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Of course, he was a prophet. He looked forward. He saw the coming of the Christ. He probably saw first and second advent. And the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? By the way, I think this is good to help us pinpoint his birth in 6 B.C., his death in 33 A.D. He's probably biologically now 39 years of age. So, uh, but they don't say you're not yet 40. They say you're not yet 50. Okay? I think he was pushing 40, but his hard life had him looking more like 50. Working outdoors, working as a carpenter, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, men, uh, one from whom men hide their face. I think, I think our Lord had a tough growing up. Joseph died shortly after he was 12. He had to raise... He had to take care of his mother and four brothers and who knows how many sisters. He probably worked himself to the bone before he was even 30 going to baptism. Anyway, he's, he's 39 biological years from the manger to this episode. And they say, well, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? I find that to be an interesting ballpark number that threw out there that 50 instead of 40. Um. Anyway, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. One of his I am statements in the Gospel of John. Uh, of course, he's God the Son, pre-incarnate glory. John seventeen five. Father, I have accomplished the work you have sent for me to do. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And you know what? He's going to get so much more. Because the Father's not, he laid aside his privileges to, to walk his walk of humility, but he's going to get more than back than what he laid down. He's going to have a glory greater than his pre-incarnate glory. His post-resurrection glory as the Son of Man. And Scripture describes it as a greater glory. And I'm already at 11 o'clock. Uh, so I hate to do this to you. Um, we'll use next hour, at least the first part of next hour, next week, to uh, take you through those. Because I think it's important. And then we'll be ready for episode 10, Jesus' last sermon from Matthew 23. That'll take a little while to go through. Um, because Matthew 23 is a, is a substantial chapter. But 
I don't want to just leave that go and, and not address those verses. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23, we saw a little bit today. And then Revelation 5, the song in heaven when the, when the Lamb of God stands before the Ancient of Days. We need, to, uh, we need to understand the glory he receives after the cross is greater than he had before his incarnation. And he was not entitled to it until he was faithful to go to the cross. And uh, that's something we've got to understand or, or we, uh, we're going to miss out on, I think, something pretty special for us to uh, identify with in our own priesthood. So we'll use next week to do that. Father, thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. And Father, as we, as you teach us the deep things, Father, as you teach us the length and width and height and depth, as you open our, the eyes of our understanding where we can truly appreciate the, uh, what are the riches of your inheritance in the saints. It starts with your son and it goes to us. Father, we need the eyes of our understanding enlightened. I pray that Ephesians 1 prayer for each one of us, that we would identify with not a crucified Savior, not a risen Savior, but the crucified, risen, and seated Savior at your right hand. Teach us the impact of this, Father, that we might be more effective in, in our own priesthood, our own ambassadorship, our own soldier function. And I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.